0: Now I know you all will join me in saying, Lord, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The young man was driving through the countryside enjoying the beautiful weather. He had the top down on his convertible, and he was just zipping along around the curve, just having a great time. And suddenly... There was a middle-aged woman in a Mercedes-Benz Mercedes who came around the corner in front of him and she had just lost control of her car. And she swerved at the last minute to avoid a head-on collision. And just as they passed each other, and she yelled out through her lord window, pig, and the young man just instinctively yelled back, cow, <laughs> and then he proceeded to round the curve and collided head on with a big pig in the middle of the road. Some of you will get that later. Now, I cannot explain what would cause him to respond so instinctively to a woman who was only trying to help him avoid a collision. Who is to say any of us would have responded differently? Most of us came into this room this morning with our own issues, Worries about health, family, finances, papers to write, uncertainties about the future, pain of loss or suffering. And any number of us, together with all of those difficulties, might have yelled out in the same way instinctively as he did because of a tailspin of depression or debilitating anxiety. We humans sometimes walk a very thin tightrope balancing precariously between elation and joy and fulfillment on the one side and hopelessness and despair and depression on the other. At any given moment, we can snap, look someone in the eyes who's only trying to help us and call them swine. So who of us really can explain the human heart or the intricacies of our minds? Some amateur psychologists say the answer is to focus on the uniqueness of each one of us individually every one of us has unique gifts and singular contributions we're all like a snowflake there are no two one of us, no two of us exactly alike you're unique you see and therefore you're special your very uniqueness constitutes your value the answer to our problems can be found so these pop psychologists say in looking inward, looking within you, to see just how special you really are. The problem is, of course, that doesn't work. The more we engage in what can only be called navel-gazing and self-analytical reflection, the more depressed some of us become. One prominent sociologist has described American values today as utilitarian individualism. He said, quote, the goals of life in America today our personal success and vivid personal feelings." End quote. In our disposable consumer society, marriage has become a vehicle for personal development, work a vehicle for personal achievement, and the church a vehicle for personal fulfillment. In our culture, we live only for ourselves. We have elevated the freestanding individual to the ultimate virtue and commemorated that with a Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. Some have suggested it's time to build a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Others say what we need is distraction. We have long understood the simple power of diversion. In order to cope with things like death and illness and disease, we have decided simply not to think about them. In fact, that's why we pay our entertainers so much money, because they help us forget things like death, illness, and disease. And if I may be so rude to say it, that's why we pay our theologians and ministers so little, because they make us think about things like death, illness, and disease. We humans have an incredible ability to talk about the least important things in life while avoiding assiduously the most important things in life. Well, in a sense, this idea of distraction or diversion is actually correct. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the distinct privilege of standing before you this morning and declaring that this text in Psalm 118 is an invitation to you. And hear this, responding to that invitation is the answer to what ails you. This is the answer to life on the tightrope between depression, hopelessness on the one hand, and joy and elation on the other. Now you may be saying just now, and rightly so, Arnold, how audacious. What a bold assertion you're making. And yet this invitation is for you, and it will answer what ails you. Hear these words. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. As I explore the depths of these words, you all here in this room are invited to join me in praising the Lord, giving thanks and adoration for his goodness, his steadfast love, which endures forever. So first of all, let's begin with give thanks. Really, this just means praise, But it's not the regular common word for praise that all of you beginning Hebrew students learned on the first day of class, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's not that word, rather this invitation has elevated and blended praise together with something else, with gratitude. The language of the Old Testament Psalms heaps verbs together upon more verbs to express intense emotion in praise, which is joined with joy, singing, playing musical instruments, exultation, rejoicing, and glorifying God. And in this case, Psalm 118, verse 1, with this particular word, praise is combined with gratitude. The NRSV here says, oh, give thanks. But it means much more than that. And still this morning, I'm honored to represent this psalm in saying, oh, come to the Lord and give him thanks with a grateful heart. All of you within the sound of my voice, praise God. Let's praise God together with a grateful heart. And such praise cannot be private. It is not limited just to you and God. This invitation is plural. So we say in Kentucky, all you all together, praise God together with a grateful heart. All are invited to reflect with grateful hearts in praise. This particular kind of praise focuses on what God has done for us. It is an invitation for you this morning to focus on something beyond you, something bigger than you, something grander than you, and your issues and your concerns and your limitations, no matter how much they may be genuine. The title of my message this morning is, Get Over Yourself. And I worried about sending that to the chapel office because I have no one particular in mind (laughs) This is for all of us. Get over yourself. Life is not really lived fully until we live for something bigger than us, something absolute, some idea to give yourselves to with complete abandon. We humans are created, you see, to need something big to hitch our lives to. The 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard searched for an idea that would capture him, that would be worthy of sacrifice. He experienced great anxiety and depression, but finally he found his great idea. What I really lack, he said, is to be clear in my mind what I am to do, not what I am to know. The thing is to find a truth, to find the idea for which I can live and die. So what is that idea? What is that truth? This text has the answer. Here is the something, that thing that you should focus on which is bigger and grander than you and which turns life into something worth living. And as it turns out, it's not a thing at all, it's a person. The text goes on, give thanks with a grateful heart to the Lord. Worship is the answer to your problems. The simple message of this text this morning explains what we need to praise God with a grateful heart because that's what you were created to do. That's what you're supposed to do and because when you worship God rightly, such worship brings peace and comfort to your troubled mind. Noah, after the trouble of the flood, the trauma of the flood, built an altar and worshiped. Abraham, after leaving his homeland and everything that could provide security for him, went to a land not knowing where he was going and when he arrived, he built an altar and worshiped. David learned his whole family had been captured by the Amalekites and his own men wanted to stone him to death. And in that moment, he turned to the Lord and the text says says he found strength. Elijah, terrified by Jezebel's threats to kill him, exhausted, wanting his life to be over, heard God speaking to him, not in a whirlwind or an earthquake or fire, but in a sheer silence of God's presence. And he worshiped. And he was empowered to return to fighting heretical worship in ancient Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah, after the loss of the king and the city and the nation, delivered the people by rebuilding the city. And the first thing they do is to have a worship service, to read the sacred text, and to recommit themselves to God. Give thanks this morning. Praise God with a grateful heart. This is the invitation. Get over yourself Focus on something outside of and beyond who you are. Give thanks to the Lord. The text goes on to say, for he is good. There it is. You can trust him. You can afford to love the Lord Yahweh. You can adore and praise him with gratitude because he is good. And this is not simply a morality or a goodness such as holiness or sinlessness. God is those things. But as it's used here, good has to do with the dependable way in which God satisfies your longing heart, the way that God meets your needs and quenches your parched soul. Elsewhere, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Ladies and gentlemen, it's safe to trust God. It's safe to To praise God. Come on in. The water's fine. This invitation is to you. Even as I'm saying these words in this moment. Praise God with a grateful heart. For he is good. Not at the end at an altar call. Where we call you to further commitment. But in this moment join me in praising God today. Because he's good. Lift your heart to the Lord. And give him grateful praise. But this is not all. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This text is punctuated at each step along the way four times in four verses by this wonderful assertion about the Lord as the object of our praise. Ki chazdo, you know I had to say that and get that in there, and some of you know what that is. The beautiful expression, ki chazdo, for his steadfast love endures forever." A familiar phrase to ancient Israelite worshipers. And now in our use this morning, it's driving deep and pounding strong into our praise. This glorious truth, his steadfast love is forever. It has no termination point, no expiration point. It is forever. This is God's covenant faithfulness toward us even while we were yet sinners. The problem is in our use of the expressions, I love you and God loves you. That's a wonderful sentiment, but we don't mean the same thing by it. Even when using the same word love, as pointed out many years ago by Ravi Zacharias, the Christian apologist, and he's repeated this many times. When I say I love you and you refuse to love me, I hurt because I've lost something. But when God loves you and you refuse to love God, God hurts too because he knows you've lost something. In refusing to love me, you hurt me, but in refusing to love God, you hurt yourself. Like the individual who stands on the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago and says, today I'm going to break the law of gravity. And at the end of his jump, he hasn't broken the law of gravity, he's proven the law of gravity, he's only broken himself. And so this morning, when you break the laws of God, you end up proving the laws of God and breaking only yourself. This invitation is to accept and celebrate the love of God for you in the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. The text addresses all Israel in verse 2. They were to answer together, his steadfast love endures forever. And then it addresses all the priesthood, all those who are called and devoted to service of God in the temple and in worship. And they together were to answer, His steadfast love endures forever. And then he turns to the um, God-fearers, anyone else who might be loosely attached to Israel, but have become fearers of God, to join in the refrain, His steadfast love endures forever. And so this morning, all Asbury... Praise God with a grateful heart, because God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. All chapel staff, all of you, those of you who are devoted to helping us and assisting us in worship, praise God with a grateful heart, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. All God-fearers, no matter what your association with Asbury, or if you're visiting, or you don't know where you stand, You're gonna join us in a few moments as we shout and sing and praise him, his steadfast love endures forever. I hope you'll remember that phrase because I'm gonna ask you to repeat it in a few moments. Now, as I draw these thoughts to a close, let me say that Christian faith can be summarized by imagining with me this morning two types of people. First picture someone sitting on a balcony and I don't mean a balcony as we have here, but a small Spanish balcony. Very small balcony overlooking a street below. The balcony, I want you to imagine for a moment, is like a platform looking over the street as travelers are walking along below. We'll call these people balconeers, and they can overhear people walking on the street below. They might hear them discussing things, but they're sitting in the balcony, theorizing about the reality of life on the street. The travelers down below are trying to get from point A to point B. They're not necessarily thinking about what the balconeers are thinking about. They have other issues at stake. And Christian faith is like that because we, by definition, as students and those called to Christian scholarship are balconeers. We're sitting in the balcony, theorizing about the problem of evil. And we're trying to determine, as best we know, from scripture and from tradition and from reason and from experience, what is evil and where does it come from? Or we're thinking about Trinitarian perichoresis. If you don't know what that is, wait, you'll get to it. And we're trying to understand how the three members of the Trinity are all relating to each other and what their various roles are and so forth. But the people on the street, the person in the traveler on the street is only worried about evil as far as... He or she's trying to avoid it (laughs) and trying to live a life that is righteous and good and avoids evil. Or when it comes to the traveler who's thinking about the Trinity, that traveler wants to know how best to serve and praise the Trinity. And there are times when the traveler needs to walk upstairs to the balcony and take a good lesson in theology, but there's also time when the balconiers need to step down onto the street and say, I've studied the problem of evil as best I can. I've analyzed the Trinity as best as I can understand the Trinity, but now it's time for me to walk. And so this morning, as you've come away from writing papers and reading books and studying syllabi at this early part of the semester, it's time for you to come to this place and in a few moments to take communion. And as you do so, hear this great invitation, and now I'm going to ask you to stand, and you'll repeat the refrain when I give you the cue. All of Asbury, give praise to the Lord with a grateful heart because he is good, his steadfast love. Chapel staff and all of you who are called into ministry, praise the Lord with a grateful heart because he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. All you God-fearers, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever your relationship with Asbury might be, you're here at this moment in this time. And you're with us, and we're praising the Lord together with a grateful heart. So join in with us in this praise. Praise God with a grateful heart, because he's good. His steadfast love endures forever.